1970, Can were lost. They were without their distinctive singer. Their first album had got them some success, but they were still playing small venues. Maybe their particular brand of avant-garde was too much for the world. They decided to reassess their sound. They welcomed in two singer-songwriters and lovers from L.A., Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, who would push them to unparalleled levels of success. Nah, I'm just kidding. They enlisted a hobo they found begging on the street, who's even weirder than Malcolm. And that is not a joke. Yes, here's another legend. Holger and Yaki were enjoying a beer at a Munich cafe before a show and saw a strange, stone, Japanese man making a, quote, incantation in the street. Holger told Jackie that that strange man would be their new singer. The two of them invited him to come sing with them at their sold-out show. He accepted, because he had nothing else to do that night. He asked them about a rehearsal beforehand. When they said there wasn't one, he said, Okay. Damo Suzuki started the show a bit timid, but by the end he was screaming and threatening the crowd with some strange martial arts. By the end, most had left. Apparently, actor David Niven was one of the only 30 people who'd stayed. He said later of the show, It was great, but I didn't know it was music. Damo was a perfect fit. And thus sparks one of the great musical debates. Though less well-known than the Gabriel vs. Collins or the Roth vs. Hagar, the Mooney vs. Suzuki fights still flare up when music nerds get stoned enough. And there's no better way to compare the two than a 1970s soundtracks featuring both singers. As the title implies, it's a collection of film music. Can had a strange way of doing soundtracks. Only Ehrman would see the films, then he'd come back and describe the plot to the others. The rest of the band thought that the visuals would interfere with their creativity, and as the vast majority of the commissions they saw were pornography in the guise of art films, they may have had a point. Now, Soundtracks doesn't get the love of the preceding or succeeding albums, but I consider it one of their best. Included in this playlist are one of Mooney's last recorded tracks, and easily the most straightforward thing they'd ever record. She Brings the Rain. The other, Don't Turn the Light Off, Leave Me Alone, features Damo's first recorded vocals, and even more cowbell than we've heard thus far. This album contains another monster track, Mother Sky, which is 14 minutes of psychedelic bliss and stands as the hardest they'd ever rock. Yes, once again, our playlist does not contain the key track, I guess that means you'll have to listen to the whole album. Strap in, because we're about to enter Can's Holy Trinity, and we start with 1971's Tagomago, their big one, their double album. Yes, here it is, the dreaded double. Now that label comes burdened with the expectations of unbridled ambition, bloat, and an allergy to editing. And that totally applies here. But, it's also considered one of the most influential albums of all time. The first half of Tagomago sees all those Sly and James Brown influences finally taking hold of the band. Somehow Can has morphed into a funk machine, but not in the way you'd expect. It sounds as if they decided to make funk music, but only had a description in a book. Does it work? Oh yeah. 
Yaki sounds like he woke up from an uneasy dream, transformed into a monstrous vermin, and used those extra arms to lay down some sick beats. If you just deleted the rest of the band from this album, I'd still listen to it. But really, everybody's on. And Damo, somehow, his word soup, a mix of Japanese, English, and random sounds carry with it a pop sensibility that helps us forget how far out even the catchiest tracks are. The highlight is indubitably Hallelujah, 18 minutes of a single drum beat repeated into infinity, while the rest of the band jams along in a two chord groove. It sounds like it should be boring, it's not. The description sounds like something that should have trimmed down, but it's perfect just the way it is. This album has been surrounded by all sorts of rumors. The title, Tagomago, is an island that is rumored to have connections to Eleister Crowley. People say that this title is some ode to Satanism, that certain rituals were involved in its genesis. And when listening to the two epic sound collages that make up the bulk of the album's second half, it doesn't sound like such a crazy claim. There's just something sinister going on as if you found yourself in the middle of a dark rite. The first, Aum, was pieced together from snippets recorded between sessions, where the band was just messing around, unaware that Holger had tapes running. The other is Peking O, which used a lot of experimental techniques I don't understand, but thankfully, Holger clears it all up. He says he used a sine wave generator, and Irvin had a special microphone with a lot of echo, and Yaki Liebezite used a drum machine on Peking O, but to destroy the rhythm, not to create it. Yeah, uh, I hope you have some drugs available. Now, I'll be honest with you, I rarely listen to the second half of this album. The band wasn't even planning on releasing it, but Hildegard Schmidt, Ehrman's wife and future manager said, maybe somebody might be interested in this someday. United Artists was gaga about the first disc, but they were a bit reluctant about the second. But Hildegard was stubborn and said that both are essential. For those who are listening to the playlist, we've spared you the too crazy stuff. We have the opening track, Paper House, a psychedelic workout with a series of tempo changes, and Oh Yeah, featuring some tracks being recorded, then played backwards, then re-recorded forwards and, and, and backwards. Don't make me try to explain what they're doing. It's, it's just awesome. <laughs> 